Let's turn together, please, to Ephesians chapter 5. We will be spending our time together today in verses 22 through 24. If you are familiar with what this passage is, or if you just flipped your Bibles open and saw these verses, you might be thinking to yourself, oh, great. This is one of those passages that uh, I really love to hear, and you might say that if you are of the male persuasion. If you are of the female persuasion, you may have just opened this passage and said, oh, great, I don't want to hear this passage because I don't like it or I really struggle with it. But because we teach verse by verse through books of the Bible, we don't skip anything. And it is my hope that as we spend time together in these three short verses today, that they will be a source of encouragement and challenge all at the same time, and that we will see them rooted in the context in which they are written, and that you will find hope as you respond to them in faith and obedience to your Savior, which, of course, is what this is really all about. So we're going to take the next several weeks and work through these texts about the relationships between husbands and wives, starting today. Then eventually we will talk about the relationship between parents and children, and then the relationships in chapter 6 also about between slaves and masters, and we will try to apply that to our context today as best we can. But today, beginning this short series within a series on the Christian family, we will cover verses 22 through 24. So let's read the text, if you don't mind, these three verses, and then I want to help us understand how it links to the immediate context, and I want to begin putting a brief outline in front of you and try to root that in a broader context of the Bible itself. So let's start by reading this text. Wives, verse 22, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. This is the word of the Lord. So in the immediate context, as we have tried to establish in some measure of detail, Paul has taken the first three chapters of Ephesians to remind them of who they are in Christ, the great privileges that they have in Christ. And of course, that's not something that You come to once and comprehend intellectually, cognitively, but it's something that you must come back to over and over, for we run to other sources of encouragement and identity inevitably. So we are to come back to our standing, our position in Christ over and over again. But basically, in Ephesians chapters 4 through 6, Paul then establishes a response to that grace. If it's true that our righteousness comes from Jesus, that that God sovereignly did this and it superabounds and exceeds beyond our wildest imaginations, there are implications, therefore, for the way that we live. So you might say it like this. Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 is grace. Ephesians chapters 4 through 6, joyful response. That's how I would put it. And that kind of response, that joyful response, is in keeping with the measure of grace that we find poured out upon us through Christ. In that sense, this section, which can be a bit of a landmine section, a section perhaps that we seek to avoid because of how hard it can be and how, frankly, countercultural it might sound, how passé and old-fashioned it might sound, If the grace of Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 is true, if those privileges and promises are ours, then joyful response should be the natural extension of what Christ has done for us. And so we've been learning together so far in chapter 4 and now about halfway through chapter 5 about ways that we should respond to this superabounding, surprising grace. We learned in verse 2 of chapter 5 that we're to walk in love. In the following section, we learned about things that we should avoid. We should not be marked by sexual immorality or impurity or covetousness. We should be careful the way we use our mouths. Positively, in contrast to this, we are to walk as children of light. And as we learned last week, we are to walk wisely. 
seizing the day for the sake of the glory of God and living collaboratively for the glory of God, reminding each other of what is true of us, Ephesians chapters 1-3, through that we do belong to the one true God and that He did sacrifice His one and only beloved Son for us. And as we build ourselves collaboratively together up on our most holy faith, we will continue on this hard, difficult, narrow path until the day when Jesus returns and consummates our salvation. Our lives are to be marked by thanksgiving, verse 20. And as we saw in verse 21, the last verse of our section from last week, we are to submit to one another. Upon what basis? Paul says, out of reverence for Christ. To come back to that verse, because it leads into our section for this week, it's, it's sort of the link of these two chains that holds the sections together. So verse 21 is the link between verses 1 through 20 and then verses 22 through really down through the middle of chapter 6. Because Christ gave himself up for us willingly, setting aside his comfort, his prerogatives, even his evident obvious glory, and allowed his own creatures, the ones for whom he was dying, willful rebels, to murder him that he might atone for them. Because Jesus lived that way, we are no better. The servant is not higher or greater than his or her Lord. And if Jesus lived in such a fashion, characterized by self-sacrifice for the salvation of another, then of course it is in keeping that we should do the same. It's, it's reasonable. It's logical. Now, it's not easy. And it will cost us, frankly, everything. But Jesus talked about this, right? The gospel life, the way of the cross, the life of the Christian is a life of sacrifice. It's about dying, and in dying we find life. The first will be last, and the last will be first. But it is difficult for us as sons of Adam daughters of Eve to respond to our culture and to our surroundings in that way, reflexively or naturally, instinctively. Because we are sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, our instinct is to, to seek our own. Our, our instinct, our, our internal drive is to, is to make ourselves known, to, to seek our own comfort, and perhaps by extension, to use others, to step on others, to, to rise above and to find our deepest joy in doing so. And I think because of the culture in which we live, the enlightened West where it's all about me, the individual, this is all the harder. So because of our sin and because of our culture, Exhortations to submission might on the surface sound a bit romantic and even great, nice. But when it comes down to the reality of life, this is really, really hard. So the Ephesian church might have heard Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, and perhaps the elder reading it would have paused for just a moment, and they would have thought, oh, that sounds pretty good. I'd like to live in a community where we all got along well, where we always, always took care of each other well. But Paul didn't let them off the hook. He gave them practical examples of what submission would look like. So there's a sense to which, as brothers and sisters of Christ, as members of this local body, the church, that we are to submit to one another to serve each other, sometimes to be stepped on by another, to willingly forgive one another, to, to forbear, to, 
to eagerly seek the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, that should characterize us holistically. And yet, there are specific ways in which certain people should submit to others uniquely. So we will find that wives are to submit to their husbands. In a sense, chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, children are to submit to their parents. And in a sense, and again, we will struggle to find a way to apply this to our modern context, slaves were to willingly submit to their masters. But let's take the first of these relationships today in verses 22 through 24. So just to be clear, there's a sense in which we all willingly submit to one another. Yet, there are specific, unique, distinct examples of where certain parties should submit to another. So in this case, wives are to submit to their husbands. So verse 22, wives are to respect and submit to their husbands. You notice I don't have a period at the end of that sentence or fragment on the screen, and you'll see why in just a moment. At the end of this section, in verse 33, the end of the section about wives and husbands, Paul comes back and says that wives are to respect their husbands, a different word. So wives are to respect and submit to their husbands. Now, perhaps at the very beginning of our time together today, it would be helpful for me to define what this means. I admit that it's a little bit difficult. In some senses, we could use the word obey, but we don't like that word so much when it comes to the husband-wife relationship because it sounds more like a child and parent relationship. And of course, that word is used for parents and children in chapter 6. So submission is not a synonym for obedience. Submission, frankly, is, is more of a spirit it's a, it's a posture, if you will. Wives should be postured toward their husbands in such a way that they are willing to follow their leadership. Sometimes being willing to set aside their own viewpoints and prerogatives to do so. Now, it's also important here at the beginning, because we won't get to verses 25 through 33 today, it's important for me to say that Paul assumes that for the most part, and these Christian churches and Christian households, that submissive wives would be living in harmony with loving husbands. I'll come back to this a bit at the end, but I do want to say at the outset here today that husbands in a sense, you grease the wheels of your wife's submission, to use an analogy. In some senses, your marriage is a bit like a machine with cogs and gears and wheels. When it is greased and lubricated properly, it, it hums along. It operates like it should. But the problem is, whenever there is not, and this I know is not a perfect analogy, when there is not the perfect grease applied to those wheels to keep the machine going, then it stops doing so. And it doesn't just do it immediately, however, it grinds to a halt over time. And it's loud. And things break. And it's irritating. And it's troublesome. And it tears hearts apart, and it's frustrating, and it is tasteless, and it is difficult. And over time, if in the grinding of the gears, there is not a mutual coming back together by husband and wife to, to detect what is wrong, then inevitably and sadly, the machinery of marriage, which at one time was humming along perfectly, can come to a grinding halt, and it can at times be too late to fix. Hearts are too broken, sin is too deep, offenses have gone too far, and it's, it's just hard to, to put it back together again. 
Now, by God's grace, that can happen. We've seen that happen in our church. We, we have seen the machinery come to a grinding halt, and we have seen marriages healed. But I want to say to you husbands in the analogy that, in a sense, the love of Jesus, which flows to you and through you as a conduit to your wives, helps keep the machinery going like it should. In other words... It is much easier for your wife to submit to you willingly, to respect you, if you are constantly bringing into the marriage an atmosphere and culture of gracious love. In other words, it should be that over time, as two people learn to live together, that it becomes a natural thing because you have loved your wife so well, guys, so faithfully, so sacrificially, that she is not just willing to submit to you, but she delights in doing so. We'll come back to that at the end of our time together today. So submission is, is action. It's not purely intangible. But it, but it is a posture. It's, it's a willingness to follow the leadership of the husband intangibly and intangibly. But there's a reason why Paul even had to talk about this. So let's turn together to Genesis chapter 3. I know that we come to this passage a lot, but there's a reason why we do. It explains a lot. In some ways, it's a bit of a, a master key a skeleton key for our human condition, and it helps unlock, if you will, a lot of the rest of the Bible. So this is one of those key texts we come back to frequently to help us interpret our story and the story of the Bible. And in Genesis chapter 3, and I will mention something from chapter 2 in just a moment, this helps us understand Ephesians chapter 5. Briefly, in Genesis chapter 2, the Lord God said in verse 18, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, Adam wasn't alone purely relationally. He had God. Now, there was something about the human condition where God wanted to give humans other humans, people that they could live with. And, And this is a reflection of the eternal Godhead, God the Father, God the Son and God the Spirit have delighted in one another since eternity passed. And in keeping with the very nature of God as image bearers, we were not to be solo individuals, but people who live together in harmony. So God took a rib from Adam and made his wife. And Adam exclaims in verse 23 of Genesis 2, this at last, so so Adam got it. This at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And they were to be one flesh, verse 24, and there was no shame, verse 25. That was the initial condition. Perfection. Harmony. It's what we all long for in the dating years, right? We have this idea that we want to find a spouse and and they're going to like the things we like. They're going to they're going to like the same foods we like. They're going to like the same sports teams and fashions and hobbies that we like and and we 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 do this dance thing whenever we're dating, right? And one responds to the other and back and forth you go and over time maybe you find one that didn't work out and you set them aside and you you keep looking and going and and finally you find the one and you have this beautiful idea of how life is going to look and you've seen all the movies out there that tell you it's going to be so perfect and great and then you get married and and at first maybe it is you know you go to your proverbial garden Adam and Eve lived in a perfect garden at the beginning it was this beautiful sanctuary our honeymoons are kind of like that it's it's like sanctuary for a while But it doesn't stay like that perfectly, does it? Because in chapter 3, Adam and Eve break God's one law that had been given to them. They eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that they were not to eat from. God would have instructed them and 
things like good and evil over time in his way, but they took this upon themselves and fell from grace. Verse 15, the promise of the gospel shows up. God will crush evil one day through the giving of a seed, who, of course, would be his own son. Then he says to Eve in verse 16, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for, or better translated, against your husband, and or but he shall rule over you. So there's, there's cosmic vertical separation that's going on here in Genesis chapter 3. Man is separated from God. But there's also horizontal separation that goes on. And isn't it interesting that the curses that God speaks to the woman here have to do with her family. Childbearing is going to now be difficult. In pain, she will bring forth her children. I think by extension, we could say in pain, she will raise her children, right? But it will not just be with her children that she will have difficulty, but with her husband. She will have now a propensity, a proclivity, a likelihood of wanting to rule over her husband. But God warns her. That is not the way it should be. You came out of Adam, and you should still submit to him. The problem is, now it's going to be hard. So, lack of submission for all of us, as well as between wives and husbands, is rooted in the fall. It's it's rooted in sin. And whereas before Adam and Eve related to one another perfectly, Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, there was no shame. They never fought. There was no grinding in their gears. They were were never irritated with one another. It was perfect harmony. It was Hollywood on steroids. Now, for the first time, they were not only separated from one another or from God, they were separated from one another and for the rest of their lives. And we know they lived for hundreds of years. Like nowadays, whenever people are married for like 50 years, we celebrate that. We call it a a golden anniversary. A lot of people don't make it that long, not just because of divorce, but just because of it's, it's a long time. It's a long time to live together. It's a long time to live, period. Adam and Eve, I don't even know what like a 500 year anniversary is. Like, triple platinum diamond encrusted? I don't know. They lived together a long, long time. So they had extra time to to learn what it was like to to have the grinding of the gears, but because of the promise of Genesis 3.15, you would hope that that by year 100 or 200 or whatever, that that maybe they began to figure this out, that that though they never got to go back to Eden because they were removed from the garden in Genesis chapter 3, Maybe in some senses they found whispers of it again. But this was all because they hoped in redemption. And, as we know, that is the age in which we live now. We do not just anticipate the coming of the Redeemer, Genesis 3.15, who will crush Satan and the curse of sin. It has already happened. And it's not just an historical anecdote for us. It is our story, even more so than Genesis chapter 3 being a master key which unlocks and and helps us interpret our story. The gospel, the cross, the empty tomb, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, this is the key that unlocks our story. It is the principle which helps us understand our narrative. And so I say to you, my sisters who have husbands today, submission to your husbands, this this posture of, of willingly following the leadership of your husband, it is hard for you because it is rooted in sin. And yet, that is not the end of the story. Sin does not have the final word for you, my sisters. Jesus does. And that is why Paul can say to these wives, you are to respect and submit to your husbands 
because of Jesus' gracious leadership or headship, verse 23. So wives are to respect and submit to their husbands in light of Jesus' gracious headship. And there's a comma on the screen in front of you, and there's a reason for that too. So, so though there, are more than, there is more than one sentence here in verses 22 through 24, I'm trying to, to summarize this for you today in an outline. So wives are to respect and submit to their husbands, first of all, in light of Jesus' gracious headship. Now, notice in verse 22, you're to submit to your husbands as to the Lord. In other words, you are to, to submit to your husbands, in a sense, just like you submit to the Lord. Now, I, I hesitate, and that's why I gave the caveat in a sense, that, that your husband is not your Savior. He can't be. He was not given that power. He, he'll never possess it. Furthermore, he will never be perfect like your Lord. He can't be until the consummation. He didn't die for you. He wasn't raised from the dead for you. He can't reconcile you to God. Even more so, he won't be perfect like your Lord. But Paul comes now to verse 23 and he helps explain verse 22. Jesus is a gracious leader. Verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church's body and is himself its savior. So what did Jesus do for the church? He gave himself up for her. He reconciled her to God. He rescued her. He is not just a perfect savior. He is a perfect leader. Your husband is to emulate that. He will not do that perfectly. This side of eternity for him, he will never do that perfectly. You could have the best husband out there. He might write books on marriage. He might counsel people in their marriages, but he'll never be a perfect husband. But in a sense, he is to be growing so that over time he leads you better. He loves you better. Now, this is probably a good time for me to make a couple of comments about the kind of husbands you choose, especially those perhaps who are not yet married, maybe even young people in here. You better be careful who you marry. You are not probably going to be the person who changes him you probably are not going to be the one who transforms his character. In fact, that's really not your position. He is to be the leader. Sometimes you can find, women can find a guy who is nice, successful, good-looking, whatever other quality you're looking for, and you think, well, this one thing is missing. Maybe he has not yet trusted Jesus. Or perhaps maybe he has, but he doesn't prioritize his faith as you might hope. And there are some irritating qualities about him. But you think, well, I can clean him up. I can fix him. I can mold him like clay into the guy I want him to be. I mean, he has good bone structure and, and good hair, and he has a good job. So I, I, you can't create that, right? I mean, at least I can get that, but I can fix the other stuff. That's a bad way to choose a guy. Who a guy is when he's 18 is not probably how he'll be when he's 50. And he should be on a path. And this is why, parents, you need to be very careful who you let your daughters date. Now, there's all those jokes and memes out there now, memes out there now where the guy comes to the door and the dad's holding like a Smith & Wesson. And, you know, he, as he greets the guy and shakes his hand, he's holding like a shotgun in his other hand to intimidate him. There's all those memes out there now, and those are really hilarious and funny. But, but in a sense, when that guy comes, you, you need to know who he is. I think that this also perhaps implies that you should encourage your sons and daughters, and now because we're talking about girls, your daughters, not to date super seriously before they get a little bit older. 
they don't have the discernment they need to choose such a guy. And because they can be marked by periods of wisdom and then conversely by periods of lack of wisdom, they may not have the wherewithal and discernment to choose the kind of guy that they should. So let them grow up a little bit. And then I will say to you, guys, be a hard act to follow. Love their moms in such a way that they wouldn't even think about choosing a guy who doesn't measure up. Have the kind of integrity in treating the girls in your home in such a way that they wouldn't even dream of choosing a guy who wouldn't treat them that way. Men, you set the pace for this. And my point in saying all of this is practically, it's very difficult when you get two, three, and if you make it 10 or 15 years into marriage, regretting the decision that you made. He may have had great bone structure and great promise, but if he wasn't at least stepping along the path that he should have back then, don't be surprised that he won't later. So I say to you, young ladies who have not yet chosen, be careful, be wise. But by God's grace, our church is not characterized by guys like that. Our church is characterized by guys who do love their wives. And perfectly, yes. And yet, over time, I am watching these guys, your husbands, grow in their leadership and in their sacrifice. That's who Jesus is in verse 23. He's leader and he's savior. So in a sense, wives, you submit to your husbands because you submit to Jesus. This means that when your husband is not yet a perfect leader, and that's going to be your whole marriage, but let's say early on whenever he's really figuring it out, he's getting all his ducks in a row, he's, he's learning how to walk with you, he's learning how to be a leader. That's hard when you're 22. I got married when I was 22. I thought I knew everything. I knew nothing. But my wife was patient with me, and I grew, and I changed. But even then, when I wasn't all that she wanted and, frankly, needed me to be, her Savior was. And she submitted to me because she was submitting to Jesus. I could say it this way. She was submitting to me because she was hoping in Jesus. This means, wives, that whenever your husbands are figuring it out, when they're not as graciously loving as they should be, when they're not greasing the wheels of the machinery of your marriage in love the way that they should, and it's grinding and it's irritating, and they're not doing their jobs, you can submit to them anyway because you're hoping in Jesus. Jesus is a perfect leader. Jesus is a perfect sacrificial Savior. Your hope ultimately, ladies, is not in your husband. It's in Jesus And you've got to be careful to discern the difference. I was talking to a woman not long ago who has been married to a man who has been very, very mean to her her whole life. But he had some position of authority. And because of that, she's learned to cover up for him. And I've watched this unfold over time. Despite how many times you say to her, this man is not a good man. He's not loved you like he should have. She, a long time ago, had a difficult time distinguishing between her husband and her Savior. And her husband became her Savior. And she found her identity in him. Be careful, ladies. Your husband is not your Savior. Jesus is your Savior. And while Jesus is changing your husband, you can hope in Jesus. And in doing so, even when it's not easy, even when you don't want to, even whenever your sinful heart tells you to to run away or to oppose, you can submit knowing that ultimately your submission is to Jesus, even though practically it is to your husband. Now, if you're savvy and if you're thinking... The question may arise, what if I have an unbelieving husband? What if I did make a mistake? Or what if he didn't turn out to be who I thought he was? Turn with me, please, to 1 Peter chapter 3. 
This is not just a hypothetical. This happened then, and it happens now. So Peter says to the church, likewise, wives, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, likewise, wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now, some people would say that this may mean that there is a husband that is in the church, but he's sort of on the periphery and he's not following like he should, and that over time by his wife being faithful and kind, that maybe he'll come around. That's possible. But it's more likely what Peter is saying here is that some of the wives who made up these churches had unbelieving husbands. He's encouraging them that they could submit even to them, even to an unbelieving husband who who had no heart for Jesus whatsoever. A guy who doesn't obey the word at all, who has no heart for the word, that they may be one without a word, not by irritating arguments that the wife keeps bringing back to him, but by her submissive posture or spirit. These women were not to be characterized or known by what they wore or how they looked, but instead by their spirits. And just to be clear in verses 7 and at the end, Peter says to the husbands, because there were lots of husbands who made up these churches too, likewise husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Again, husbands were to be the leaders. And again, to go back to my analogy, keeping the machinery of the marriage working by loving and sacrificing for their wives. But back to my point, back then and now today, you may have a husband or may eventually have a husband who is characterized either by consistent disobedience or even by unbelief, but by your willing submission, it can have a salvific effect. It can, it can transform his heart. It can lead him to look to Jesus So even if you have a husband who doesn't follow Jesus, your submissive posture may be used by Jesus to bring that man to saving faith or to follow Jesus with all of his heart. So this means that if you have the best husband, he never forgets an anniversary. Not just your wedding anniversary, but all the other ones, like your dating anniversary. The anniversary of your children's birth, which of course is their birthdays, Um, the anniversary when you took that great trip to the beach. He doesn't forget not only the anniversary, but which number it is. Like he doesn't have to sit there and scratch his head and think, well, is this 22 or 23? Like he knows, you know? He knows the restaurants you like to go to, and he knows the flowers you like. Like he doesn't buy you daisies when you like lilies. He knows your sizes and can actually go to the mall and buy you clothes that fit you. He holds your hand when you're scared. He watches the movies you like, even though he hates them. He takes walks with you. He'll watch the kids, all three or four of them, so you can go out with your friends for a night. He gives you money to go to Starbucks and get a massage and whatever. Like, he does all those things. If you have that kind of husband, oh, and by the way, he doesn't just remember all that stuff. He talks to you about Jesus. He addresses your faults, but always so graciously and patiently. He leads your children in devotion. Such a guy, you might say, is easy to follow. But you guys know, even if you have a husband like that, he's still not pretty often because he's still screwed up. But he's the best of the screwed up ones, right? What if you have one who's really screwed up? Maybe he's mean, maybe he's unkind. Maybe all of his dreams never come true and he took, take, takes it out on you. Maybe he never cracks open his Bible. Maybe he never talks to you about Jesus. Maybe he makes you parent like a single parent. In some sense, you still have to find some way to submit to him. Now, if he hurts you, physically especially, you've got to get away from him, at least for a season. You've got to get help. If he hurts you emotionally, you may also need to get away from him for a while. 
if he's the kind of person who, who, who really hurts you a lot, who, who puts your life under threat or danger or those of your children, you may have to leave him for a long time or even indefinitely. And if that ever happens here, you seek out some men here and we will help you. We will, we will insulate you from that. I promise you that. We will protect our sisters here in this church. Sometimes marriages fall apart to the point that a man not only hurts his wife emotionally or even physically, but, but seeks another woman and abandons his marriage. And in those cases, sometimes marriages have to come to an end or do come to an end. But we're not talking mostly about those today. I do need to cover that because those questions do come up, and I'm trying to foresee some of the questions that might be in your head right now. But, but by and large, by and large, our, our church is made up, by and large, mostly, by guys who, who are loving their wives. Maybe they're not perfect. Maybe they're not even all you really hope they would be yet. But Jesus is not just changing you, my sisters. He's changing your husbands. And by his grace over time, you will be different people. I've used this little story before, but Piper wrote, John Piper wrote a good book some time ago on marriage. And he says in that book that his marriage has not always been easy. In fact, not long before Piper officially retired from pastoring his church, he took a nine-month sabbatical to work on his marriage. Think about that. Like, this guy is one of the most prolific Christian authors of our generation. And after pastoring for decades, he stands up in front of his church and says, I have to take a nine-month sabbatical because my marriage needs help. That takes some guts. That, that demonstrates a guy who is trusting Jesus. His identity is in Jesus and not in his reputation. But he says in the book that he envisions a scene down the road. Or one day he and his wife will be sitting in a diner and knowing Piper, it probably doesn't cost more than like six bucks because he's total cheapskate and gives all his missions to uh, all his money to missions, which is just shameful to us, of course. But anyway, you know, they're sitting in this, I'm sure, cheap diner and getting like a BLT and weak coffee. And he reaches across the table and he holds her hand and they both have tears in their eyes and they sigh and they say, we've made it. This means that whether you have the most loving, perfect, attentive husband or a guy who's difficult to live with, Wives, you are still called to submit to the guy that God has given you. And notice in verse 22, we haven't mentioned this yet, you are to submit to your own husbands. In other words, if you're married to Bill, you don't submit to Larry. You submit to Bill. He's your husband, and God's working on him and you for his glory and your joy. Wives are to respect and submit to their husbands in light of Jesus' gracious headship. And verse 24 modeled after the willing submission of the church to her Lord. So in verse 24, Paul says, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. This brings us back to the structure of Ephesians. Because of what Jesus has done for us, Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, grace, we are to respond to him with joyful worship, chapters 4 through 6. Jesus is so good to his people. He has rescued his people. He's making them new. We respond, therefore, to him willingly and submissively, fighting sin, setting it aside, and choosing righteousness instead. That is the only basic response to the gospel that makes any sense. Now, as the church, and here's why the analogy is so helpful, do we do that perfectly? Do we? Do we read our Bibles as much as we should? Let's just get practical. Do we pray as much as we should? Do we attend fellowship as much as we should? Do we, do we pray together as much as we should? Do we, do we help each other fight sin as much as we should? Do we give as much of our money as we should so that people around the world can hear the gospel? Do we serve as much as we should? In secret, when it's just us, do we, do we fight sin as much as we should? Do we put off our idols and, and put on Jesus as much as we should? I mean, as the church, do we perfectly? No, we don't. Which, again, reminds us of why we always have periods of, 
of confession, repentance, even in our liturgy to remind us that we are an imperfect people. But we have a perfect Savior who leads us along, weaning us of our attention and devotion to our idols and instead replacing that devotion with devotion to Him, convincing us that such pursuits will never make us happy, but only He can. The pleasures that the world offers us, which seem like alluring baubles, they they can't make us happy, but, but Jesus can. And over the years and decades, He convinces us of that. And so, once we've been Christians for 20 years, 30 years, thank God we're not who we were whenever we were first born again. Marriages are like that. Wives, you will be like that. It's no surprise that when you were 22, maybe you were married later, you don't submit, you didn't submit like you do now. And God willing, if He does give you a golden anniversary, you don't submit willingly in a posture of of willing respect like you will then. Jesus is patient with the church helping her over time to submit in every fashion. Every nook and cranny of their existence is dealt with. So, wives, your submission will be as well. So that over time, assuming that the husband is loving as he should, he's greasing the wheels of the machinery, not perfectly, but but by and large it characterizes him, that you don't buck that. That you are fighting the disease that Eve brought into the world, but that Jesus came to remedy the curse that he came to reverse. So because God gave Eve a great, 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 exponentially great grandson who would come and rescue the world, including the first mother of all people, you as a wife and mother can hope in that son too, the son of God who died to save you, and who is being faithful not just to change your husband, but to change you, so that you submit not just in some ways, but according to Paul, in every way to your husband. Not the dream of who he might become, not the husband of your friend who you wish you had, but your husband, imperfect though he still is. So, The reason why this passage doesn't have to be a landmine for us, the reason why it doesn't have to be dreary and something that we hate, is because Jesus is involved in every detail of it. He has been from the first marriage. He was the promised hope for that first marriage that fell apart. As we said, though Adam and Eve lived together hundreds of years, our hope is that They hoped in the coming son who would would piece things back together, including their own marriage, reversing the curse, returning them to the way it had been. And though none of our marriages are perfectly harmonious, Jesus is our hope. Ladies, he is the hope of your husband, teaching him to love and, and making him into who he needs to be. So it's easier for you to submit. And I do want to say to you husbands, Make it as easy as possible for your wife to follow your leadership. But, but ladies, he's not just changing your husband, Jesus, that is. He's changing you too. So as you submit to your husband, you're really submitting to Jesus and you're hoping in Jesus, the one who can transform your heart, reverse the curse in you. And as you model this, you are helping your husband to love better. And, and this is really the point of Ephesians chapters 4 through 6, you are reflecting the glory and beauty of the gospel. Because you are hoping in Jesus, you are willing to submit. And that's what we do as a church. And that's why verse 21 of chapter 5 is here. We are all willing to submit to one another because of the hope of the gospel. So, ladies, whenever you submit to your husband, you are showing to the world that Jesus is worthy. That has a proclamational effect, not just upon your husband, but upon your neighbors. 
And it should be that over time that is so distinct, so distinguishing, frankly, so weird and countercultural. That's your neighbors, those in your community, your co-workers who never hear you badmouth your husband, even though they know he's not perfect. Who see you serve him willingly, even whenever it's clear that you really don't have to in some certain way that they wouldn't serve their husbands. That is proclamational. It's countercultural. It's transformational when you live that way. It points other people to Jesus so that they might consider his claims that he might be their savior too, their only hope as well. So ladies, when you submit to your husbands, in some senses you're at least doing pre-evangelism. You're at least doing pre-gospel proclamation, which hopefully then will give you opportunity to proclaim the actual gospel. I submit to my husband because Jesus is so good. Let me tell you about him. This also has a great impact on the way that you raise your children. Let's say you're raising boys. Whenever you submit to your husband, ladies, you're teaching your boys how to choose the right kind of woman. You are having an impact on your daughters. You are teaching your daughters how to relate to their eventual husbands. This has an impact on the little girls around you, maybe who don't even belong to you. Ladies, I hope that you will invest in the little ones that aren't even in here today, showing them what it looks like to have a humble and submissive spirit. So that this is generational for our church and not just now. Ladies, you have the potential for massive impact, not just in the little sheep that are in your home, but in the bigger flock of our church and in the community around us. So yes, this is about you, and it's about others upon whom you can have great impact. I do not say to you that this is always easy, but I do tell you to trust Jesus, to look to him, to depend upon him, especially in the hardest of moments, when your husband is the hardest to submit to, and, and your sinful flesh is rearing its ugly head, and everything inside you is crying out, no, no. Now, I do want to make one last caveat before we close. If your husband compels you or asks you to do something that is clearly sinful, your answer should be no. And if you need help to carry that out in courage, again, we will help insulate you because you are our sisters. But again, that does not characterize the men of this church. So, one final challenge. Husbands, make it easy for your wives to submit to you by the ways that you love. And wives, as you see them striving, as you see them trying, though imperfectly, as you trust Jesus your Lord, submit to them willingly. And may God cause the machinery of your marriage, and then by extension of this church, to bring him the glory that he is due, for he is our Savior. And may we find our deepest joy in him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus,